Do two walk together unless they have agreed agreed to meet? Or does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare of the earth when there is no trap for it? Or does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? Or is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Uh, These were the words of Amos, the prophet. He goes on, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Then he says, the lion has roared, and who will not fear? He's speaking about God. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? As as surely as two people walk together because they've agreed, as surely as a lion roars because it's caught something, as surely as the trap springs shut because it's caught a bird, as surely as a city trembles because the trumpet is blown, as surely... When the Lord speaks, the prophet can't do anything but speak out his word. And that's the burden, though it's not a word that he uses. That's the pressure, if you like, that was on Amos. Amos wasn't a prophet, professionally. He wasn't a son of a prophet, So he said to the the priest Amaziah, he said, I was a follower of the flock, and the Lord took me from following the flock. I was a keeper of sycamore trees. I'm not sure if I got sycamore right. He's a keeper of some kind of fruit tree. Sycamore isn't fruit, is it? But the Lord took me from following the flock. And actually the Lord took him out of the southern kingdom of Judah, into the idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel to appeal directly to the priests of the cultus that was idolatrous and to appeal directly to the king. Because God, who is the God of the nations, had seen the idolatry and and the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel and God was just about sick of it. In fact, in one place he says... I abhor your pride. So here's a people known by the name of the Lord with whom God has become thoroughly fed up and hurt. Hosea that we learned about last week actually follows Amos. The two of them overlap. Amos was was first. Hosea came second. Hosea is really about... The Lord loves righteousness. He wants right doing. In fact, he mentions at one point a plumb line. And here we have a plumb line. And as we will see, he says, God is going to judge his people by the plumb line, by their right deeds and their wrong deeds. And it's for us this morning as we stand before God to say, how righteous are my deeds before you, O Lord. God is the God of the nations. In the first two chapters, I'm going to go quickly through almost chapter by chapter. 
It's easier with Amos than it was with uh, Hosea. The first two chapters, God is the judge of all the earth. In fact, just as even now the state of Israel is surrounded by people who are his enemies and it doesn't do anything to make them friends, it seems to me, much of the time these days, but it's just as in the Middle East they're surrounded by their enemies now, those same people surrounded them before. And there's always been trouble from their, from their near neighbours. But God says to Amos, for the sins of Syria, I'm going to judge Syria because of their inhumanity to other people. And then he does a quick trip all the way around Israel to these other places, Philistia, Phoenicia, Ammon, Edom, Moab. And he says, for the sins of these nations, because they've ripped up pregnant women, because they've carried off people mercilessly into exile, because they've burned the bones of a king out of sheer disrespect and hatefulness, one nation to another, I'm going to judge these people. It's coming on them. It's going all around Israel, these nations. God says, I'm angry with their inhumanity, one to the other, and I've had it up to here with them. The time is coming. But then, he points to Judah. Well, Judah is his people, aren't they? But he says, but Judah have forgotten my laws. And, and Judah have, have not been obeying me as they ought to. They're in great danger too. Watch out, Judah. Which then, since Amos comes from Tekoa and he's going up into Samaria, into Israel having done the circle all the way around Israel, the word comes to Israel. And the people of Israel are an idolatrous people. And their problem, their big problem, which has led to their unrighteousness, actually is their prosperity. Because there has been a time, there were superpowers in the north, the Assyrians, and superpowers in the south, the Egyptians, but those superpowers, for a period of time, had lost their, their, their strength. They seemed to be in somewhat in decline. And so this gave an opportunity for Israel to expand northward, because Assyria was no longer oppressing it. And so Israel expanded northward, and it increased its lands, and because it had the best of the arable land in that part of in that part of the world, it was able to become quite rich again. Very prosperous. And it was proud of itself. And because of its prosperity, it had allowed itself to fall into all kinds of social and commercial decline and wickedness. And for this, says God, I'm going to come to Israel as well. Chapter 3, that's the passage I read to you. Do two walk together unless they agree, or the lion roar, or the bird fall into the trap, etc.? God has spoken. The lion has roared from Jerusalem to Mount Carmel in the north. The voice of the Lord speaks out, and nobody can gainsay the Lord. Fear the Lord. In other words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I speak for myself, but in all our sense of the wonderful loveless, loveness of God, I have at times forgotten the fear of the Lord. 
Because he is the almighty God. He is the God of the nations. The God, says Amos, of the Pleiades, of the star systems. But the people of Judah and the people of Israel have gotten on with their lives in such a way they've forgotten God and they don't fear him. In actual fact, they carry on as though he wasn't there. It's a terrible indictment. But God has, vainly, as it happens, been trying to get their attention. The thing is that their cultists, their worship is based on Baal worship, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Baal uh, was the god of the storm and the rain. And he was associated with Asherah, who was a goddess, the goddess of love and fertility. And the two of these were put together, and in their temple worship, though they did it in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, they were really worshipping these Baals. And when they worshipped them, and their sort of foul deeds which they did as part of their worship, they prayed to these Baals that, that, that they would be blessed in land and made fertile. And what God has been, God says through Amos is, but I gave you empty stomachs. Your fields didn't yield. I gave you, I withheld rain. You've been praying, in other words, to the God of storm and rain. I withheld the rain. And so your harvests didn't develop. I've struck your gardens and your vineyards with mildew and blight. So, You haven't noticed. You're praying to Baal, but you haven't noticed. Nothing's happening. And you haven't returned to me. You've been saying it in my name, but you haven't come back to me. It's not as though I haven't been trying to reach you. I've done it by many means. But you do not turn back to me. chapter 5, three times we hear the prophet saying, seek the Lord. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and leave. Don't seek Bethel, that's the place where all your foul worship is going on. Don't seek Bethel, don't enter into Gilgal, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out against you. Can't you hear what he's saying, this lion that's roaring? Seek good, he says, not evil that you may live, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, they've said the God is with us. Well, seek good and not evil and he will be with you, just like you said. Hate evil and love good, establish justice in the gate. Take away from me the sound of your songs, he says, of their paganized worship. To the melody of your harps, I'm not going to listen. But here's the heart of God. In your community, in your families, in your government, in your worship, let justice roll down like waters. Righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Do good, not evil. I find this shocking, personally. Chapter 6. 
Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oil. But don't, don't grieve for the ruin of Joseph, Joseph being Israel, the people of God. All this stuff you've got, but look at the injustice and the wickedness around you. You've got all this stuff and you're idling away your time and there's not a moment of regret or grief in you. You're just ignoring the poor. Amos sees various visions. One of them is of locusts devouring the land. He cries out to God, God, how can Jacob stand if you send this upon us? He's so small. The Lord resents, relents concerning this. But then he shows the land being devoured by fire. And again, Amos cries out to God, but Jacob can't stand such a thing, God. Have mercy. And again, God says, I will relent. But then he sees this plumb line. And God says, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I won't pass them by again. The high places will be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste and I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. Amos, this prophet from Tekoa, goes up to Samaria, and he speaks to Amaziah, the priest. The priest accuses him of treason, because he's speaking against the king and the the king's institutions. When do we obey God rather than man? (laughs) Amos was accused of treason. Then he was ridiculed. Oh, you countryman, get back to your sheep. And then rejected. So he came with the message of an almighty God to a people, to the priests actually, with no conscience. God's messenger is sent packing in the days of Amos. Can you read that? Any spare change? Gov, for those of you listening to the podcast, there's a, there's a cartoon. Here's a poor man Uh, begging, any spare change, sir? And a very rich man is feeling inside the poor man's pocket and saying, I'm looking, but I don't seem to find any. This was how God saw Israel. The, 
the rich are trampling the poor, the merchants are robbing the customers. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain and the Sabbath that we can offer wheat for sale so that we can make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances so that we can buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Like I said, God seems to have had it up to here. There are some terrible words at the beginning of chapter 8. God shows Amos a basket of summer fruit. There's a pun involved here, and I'm not a Hebrew expert, but the word for fruit and the Hebrew word for end sound so much like each other. There is a pun here. Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. Songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. And then there's these words, which I don't even know how to read. So many dead bodies are thrown everywhere. Silence. And here's a people whom God has loved and brought out of Egypt and he's loved them with his, his covenant love. And remember, Hosea follows Amos and Hosea keeps going on and on and on about how much God loves the people. It's though that the end has come, but God is still saying, but I still love you, I still love you, I still love you. There might still be a chance if you only realise how much I love you. He's pleaded with them through the prophets. He's pleaded with them in their fields and in their, in their cupboards, as it were. He's, and they've taken no notice and gone their own way. God's judgment the day of the Lord, which they so looked forward to, brings darkness to them. Now it's 5 to 12. Do I have your permission to carry on for a little while? Chapter 9 is different. Well, it's nearly different. It begins with devastation. The results of God's judgment. But remember Hosea, who follows Amos, how God loves these people. With a covenant love, which though they have broken the covenant, he will not. It begins with devastation. It ends with pictures of sheer beauty and restoration and planting and incredibly words which Jesus takes up in John chapter 4, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, and the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. I have an end of this generation, and this wickedness, and this injustice, and this unrighteousness, 
which is a stench in his nostrils, which is the way that that, uh, Isaiah put it. But it's not an end of my love for this people, and it's not an end of this people. That's the story of Amos. The last chapter has got these words, which I don't... If you, in, in your Bibles, if you look at the bottom sometimes, you'll see this little sort of tiny letters in italic, Septuagint. I think I've pronounced it right, and if I haven't, it's Septuagint, okay? <laughs> and, in fact, what happened was that a group of Jews towards the end of the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament period, translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek language. This would probably have been during the time of Alexander when the Greek Empire spread further than any of the previous power empires before it. Alexander spread beyond the Indus. It was a vast empire. And Greek was the language which everybody spoke. uh, As they did, Paul spoke and wrote in Greek, you see, as well. So they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And there seemed to be some... Well, I won't say discrepancies. Some sort of interesting, interesting sort of twelves of the Holy Spirit in the translation. Because Amos chapter 9 says, In these great days when they are restored, all the nations who are called by my name, uh, they may possess the remnant of Edom, speaking of Israel, they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Whereas the Septuagint put it like this, that the remnant of mankind and all the nations who are called my name may seek the Lord. So, chapter 9 speaks of a day when Israel will be restored and the line of David will be restored. Uh, This is the first time David's been mentioned in this. So just a quick reminder, when Israel split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Judah in the south, their king was always a descendant of David, to whom God's promises had been given. The king in the north was not a descendant of David. And when Israel were overrun, 30 years after Amos, were overrun and taken into exile, that was the end of it. But in Judah, they still pursued, their kings were still relatives of David going on through the generations until Judah itself was sent into exile and they never had a king again. But their messianic promises were all about David and the line of David. And Amos says about this time of great restoration, Amos says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. James, the brother of our Lord, in Acts chapter 15, quotes this about the advent of Christ. The line of David has continued at last through Christ, who is the Messiah. 
And through Christ, who is the Messiah, this God who judges the nations of the world, who is high over all, is also calling the nations of the world back to faith and life and significance in the God who created them in the first place. So, right at the end here, we've got this sort of telescopic view which Amos would never have understood because he was 800, 700 years before Jesus. It's like us prophesying now about something which is going to happen in 2750. Amos couldn't see it, but God knows his plan and his purpose. And this began to be fulfilled later in Jesus his marvellous love for the nations. Now, I don't want to take you too long over time, but I want to make one or two comments about how this might be for us now. What about Cairns? What about us? You remember that bit in chapter 6? about beds and couches and fine lambs and harps and wine. (laughs) Oh, no grief over Joseph. I find that scary. Really scary. And even more so when I compare that with something in Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel spoke about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we automatically, in our mental imagery, think of, um, think of sort of sexual perversions and things like that. According to Ezekiel, that's not the reason Sodom and Gomorrah were overrun. That was a fruit of their sinfulness, but not the reason. The reason was this. Uh, it's at verse 49 of Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom and her daughters. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. We've heard a lot about the poor and needy this morning, haven't we? They were proud. They had excess of food. I had a conversation with somebody today about this week about uh, Aldi and uh, Little, and I'm not advertising. It's just that within the conversation, somebody said, if you go to them, you don't have choice. Oh, well. Excess of food, then. And they didn't care for the poor and needy. I think there's a challenge to the church in the West right now. We have our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge of the nations and who is the saviour of the nations. He has brought us into a kingdom which cannot be shaken, according to the writer of Hebrews. We have been born again. Hallelujah. Uh, We have a risen saviour. We have the Holy Spirit accessing the life of God to us day by day. We have all these things. 
But we live in the midst of a world that is, is in prosperous ease and does have excess of food and is proud and is deviating into all kinds of wickedness as a result of its ease and we're in it and can easily get drawn into it, can't we? Judah, the southern kingdom, who did carry on with the Davidic line and did carry on with the priestly worship, got drawn into the world around them. We can. So, I challenge you, as I challenge myself, to allow the Holy Spirit, not me, but to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your lives. Because you and I have been called to be witnesses of the same living God that Amos served. The same God of the nations. A God we now know who loved us so much that his son is crucified, but we're so used to the words we forget the significance of it, or I do, who is crucified and risen from the dead, who is a saviour. So we represent a God who is a saviour, who sacrificed himself for the sins of the whole world, all these nations, all the peoples around us, all the merchants, all the people who are at ease, all the people who go to the pub where Dee and I sometimes have a meal and they sort of pile, because they can, they can pile vegetables on top of their plate till it's three stories high, go back to their place and then leave half a plateful uneaten because we have excess. We're a witness to these people of this living God and the risen Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ said he's the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And we have been called to witness of Jesus by an alternative lifestyle, which is called Christ-likeness, or is called godly. <laughs> you understand which is measured by a plumb line of righteousness. If we sin, then God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. Thank you, God. But the New Testament never gives us the liberty to sin because we're saved. Read John's first letter if you don't believe me. We're called to follow after Jesus, so part of our witness is an alternative lifestyle which is more than just a creed, but a deliberate alternative way of family life, social interaction, and business integrity. So, we've been called into a kingdom which can't be shaken, but yet once more the nations will be shaken. Poor us if when that happens there are so many things in our lives that can be shaken that we're left almost nude, eh? But if our lives are so full of the God who calls us and the Christ who ransoms us and the Spirit who fills us, if we walk humbly with our God, if we really do act justly and really do love mercy, and if we walk humbly with our God. Peter and I talk with one at times and we talk about God and then suddenly we stop and remember we're talking about him but he's here. 
We're not talking in his absence. We're living in his presence and working in his presence and witnessing in his presence. You see, if, if we do that, then there'll be nothing, very little that can be shaken from us, will us? Because we will have everything in Christ that lasts. And the witness we make to these nations and peoples around about us will be extraordinary because it will be different. And they will say, what is it that makes you like this? Why is it that you act like that? Why are you, you seem to be merciful to them? What is it? And we say we're servants of the living God and Jesus is our saviour. That's how that works. This is his lifestyle. Join us. Follow him. Because that's what he's all about.